Welcome back to the Mole Pigs podcast. Today our guest is Kate Adamala. Also with me today are Anastasia. Hello. Boya. Hi. Georgios. Hi. And I'm Will. Kate, or Katarzyna, is a biochemist building synthetic cells based at the University of Minnesota. Her research aims at understanding the chemical principles of biology using artificial cells to create new tools for bioengineering, drug development, and basic research. The interests of her lab span questions from the origin and earliest evolution of life, using synthetic biology to colonize space, to the future of biotechnology and medicine. Kate, hi. Hi, it's great to be here. Um, I'm not sure where to start, really. Um, there's so much here. How about if you tell us a bit about what a synthetic cell is? Uh, that's a very good question. Nobody knows because nobody can agree on a single definition. Um, asking what a synthetic cell is implies asking what is life and what is a cell. And these are two really difficult questions. Um, to me personally, a synthetic cell is a liposomal bioreactor that expresses proteins. So it's basically a central dogma going on inside a phospholipid liposome. So it's not unlike a modern terrestrial cell, except very, very much simpler and fully controllable. Um, a lot of people consider synthetic cells to be um, microfluidic droplets, also expressing proteins. But also people call synthetic cells things as simple as just liposomal bioreactors without protein expression. So just a few enzymes uh, performing a certain pathway. The general consensus is that synthetic cell is something more complex than a simple biochemical experiment. So it has to at least look like a cell, smell like a cell, maybe quack like a cell to be called a cell. Um, but it's not living. Right now there is no synthetic cell that would be universally considered living, although some people have their own opinions on it. And some people consider what we do a living cell. I strongly disagree with it. I realized that was a very roundabout answer to a simple question. Uh, well, I think it's quite a complicated question, so I think that's definitely got to, to some of the interesting points. How close or far would you say your synthetic cells are to what people might more universally consider life? Um, so I, if I answered right, your cells are, or at least some of them, are doing transcription and translation, but I assume they're not replicating yet. Would that be the final step, or, or is there anything else you'd like to see? Um, they're not self-replicating, and that is a key difference, at least to some of us. Um, you can replicate synthetic cells by hand. So you can have a grad student-assisted replication where a person actually sits at the bench and extrudes those vesicles through a little filter, and at the end you have more vesicles, so they did replicate but not self-replicate. And to me, that's the key is to be considered living, a biochemical system has to maintain homeostasis and self-renew itself. So not just make more copies of itself, but also make all the machinery that keeps it going. So not just simply split the compartment, but also replicate everything, all the guts, everything it needs to keep going. So in our case, the biggest hurdle is to self-replicate a ribosome. So make a ribosome that makes another ribosome. Um, there is obviously a problem with that definition because, um, for example, I myself could not self-replicate. I couldn't have a child by myself. So am I not alive if self-replication is necessary? Um, I think I'm very much alive. So. 
there's obviously limits to every definition of life you can come up with. Um, to me, a synthetic cell that will be able to self-replicate all of its guts and uh, make more copies of its compartment will be living. And I think that's the majority of the field right now accepts that definition. Uh, there are some people that claim that my synthetic cells already are alive because they cross a certain complexity threshold. So they have biochemical circuits, they maintain homeostasis, they interact with their environment. So they're complex enough that if an alien picked up the tube of my synthetic cells and analyze it, their conclusion would have to be that this is not an abiotic system. This is a system that's part of a biosphere, hence it's living. I don't agree with that. To me, an organism has to do more than just sit there and, and sniff the environment to be considered living. So you mentioned as part of the definition of what a synthetic cell is that um, you, you think protein expression is important. How true to the biology does that have to be? Are you thinking about proteins that are actually like found in biology or could you use something more artificial? And why, why protein specifically? Um, I want to go as artificial as possible. Um, right now we're using mostly natural, de natural derived proteins and just straight out natural proteins just because that's what we have. Um, to me, one of the biggest advantages and, and kind of attractive points of this field is that we're not tied by the modern terrestrial, terrestrial biology. We can make lineage agnostic organisms that express any kind of a biopolymer. So a protein is kind of a uh, shortcut word here. Um, anything a ribosome can make. So it doesn't have to be a protein. It doesn't have to be a peptide bond. Um, ribosomes already can make non-peptide bonds and we are evolving them to make even more. So any biopolymer that's genetically encoded uh, using unnatural amino acids, using different kinds of backbones, anything counts as, to me, counts as um, biopolymer that's worth making in a synthetic cell. So are you trying to... Um... Are you, are you trying to essentially re-engineer the ribosome from scratch? Like, do you, do you, are you, are you taking, are you taking inspiration from nature in that it's going to have to be made up of, you know, ribosomal RNAs and ribosomal proteins, or are you just trying to kind of do it better the first time around? <laughs> right now we're taking inspiration from nature because we're not smart enough to come up with a completely new design on our own. Um, Nature is not very inspiring when it comes to a ribosome. Um, ribosome is one of the dumbest possible catalysts um, for how ubiquitous it is and how crucial it is to, to earth biochemistry, it really is a terrible catalyst. It's not even a proper enzyme, it's an entropy trap. So we have room to improve and ribosome, at least the catalytic center of the ribosome, the peptidyl transferase center, have not been improved upon since the last universal common ancestor of all, all organisms. If you look at the catalytic center of the ribosome, it's incredibly conserved. All known domains of life use the very same and pretty terrible catalyst to make all of the proteins on Earth. So there is a lot of room for improvement. And because the ribosome is so crucial to life, it's really hard to improve on a ribosome in living cells. Because if you mess with a ribosome, you end up with a dead cell. Um, our cells being already dead, they can't get any more deader. So we can improve on a ribosome by changing, mutating the crucial parts of the ribosomal RNA and proteins. Things like the peptidyl transferase center, the ribosomal hinges, which are also RNA, 
we can improve on those without the risk of killing the whole organism. So that's where we are right now. We're using what nature gave us and trying to build upon it. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if 10 years from now we'll be able to build a completely new biopolymer synthesis unit that's not based on the natural ribosome, but we're not there yet. Are you still making your ribosomes from like RNA and protein or are you using something completely different? Um, RNA and proteins right now because I don't know any better. Um, once we learn how to modify the existing ribosome, so once we re-evolve the PTC and re-evolve some crucial ribosomal proteins, we might move on. Um, for example, a ribosome that ditches the RNA would be amazing. If the catalytic activity comes from a protein, um, that would be really powerful, but we don't have the technical capacity to do that yet. So I think it makes sense why um, it's difficult, at least for, for kind of life to have improved upon the ribosome in three, four billion years. But can you speculate on um, why maybe there weren't any events where there was some, I, I know there's a lot of components, but some sort of gene duplication that then this could make an inactive or dead ribosome in parallel with the live ribosome and then um, kind of improve upon that until it got better. Is there a reason why we're stuck with such a terrible, um, such a terrible catalyst? I think this was the first one that worked. And once you mastered the ability to make genetically encoded proteins, you just moved on. Um, the reason why, my guess is the reason why the gene duplication evolution strategy didn't work for work out for the PTC is because it's incre incredibly costly. Um, if you look at the cytoplasm, the ribosomal RNA and ribosomal proteins are the main components. Cells spend a lot of money and time making elements of the ribosome. So if you look at the research that's been done recently on the parallel ribosomal systems, there are engineered cells that have two different orthogonal sets of ribosomes. It's incredibly costly. It's incredibly toxic for to a cell to maintain that. And maintaining an inactive ribosome and expressing it to give it a chance to evolve, I think it would just bankrupt a cell. And if that happened at some point, we don't see that because those cells ended up dead. Are there other features of cells that you find are way less efficient than they perhaps should be because usually it seems like evolution tends to find very good solutions to various problems. Yeah, evolution is great at improving at what it has, but if it doesn't have something, then there's nothing to improve on. I think that's why cell metabolism, as we know it, might possibly be rewritten in the next few years because a lot of metabolic processes are limited by the rate of protein synthesis. Um, if you look at, for example, the Vibrio, one of the fastest growing, fastest replicating organisms, a lot of um, kind of a classical biochemistry processes in that organism are already slightly different because of the rate of protein synthesis is, is faster. But again, you're running into resource allocation problems. Um, to, synthesize ribos to synthesize ribosomal proteins faster, a cell has to have this whole pipeline of delivering reagents faster. So there is and membrane permeability issues, there's membrane transport issues, and then there's just the physical distance inside a cell to cover for all of the reagents issue. And then you have this degenerated uh, genetic code, which means you have to maintain several different species of tRNA for every amino acid you're trying to encode. 
which is great from the evolutionary point of view. It's, it's a safety mechanism. But if you're working towards improvement of the rates of everything you're doing as metabolism, it's a incredible resource sink. So my guess is once we learn how to make a faster ribosome and once we learn to cut down the genetic code. So, you know, my, my dream is an organism that has non-degenerated genetic code. So single tRNA per single amino acid. And obviously every mutation will then be lethal, but I don't care because I'm maintaining that bug myself anyway, so I can prone it if it, something goes wrong. Um, and so then you have 20 tRNAs interviewing for each spot instead of 60 something. Um, you have faster protein synthesis, which will in turn require reimagining protein folding because right now rates of protein folding are coupled with the rates of protein synthesis. And if you try to synthesize certain proteins too fast, they will misfold. So that will have to be re-evolved. But once that's once that happened, and notice that I said once instead of if, I believe this will happen. Um, once that happened, we will have a really fast metabolism and we will be able to redesign fundamental principles of things like energy regeneration, um, amino acylation and uh, transcription. So does that mean that you're also going to have to engineer much faster DNA polymerases? Because if, I, if I'm not mistaken at the moment, uh, yeah, at the moment, most bacteria's uh, genomes divide more slowly than they do, than the, than the actual cell doubles. So like, do you have a system, a system for nested replication or are you just going to have to speed up or, or shrink the genome? Um, I think we totally could speed up um, DNA polymerases, but I think the more efficient would be cutting out junk. Um, bacterial genomes are full of crap that bacteria don't use. It's just there and it's always been there. Or there are genes that are very rarely used. Um, here we're talking, we're not talking about building a robust organism that will live on its own. We're talking about building a tool, a cell that's a tool. And so that cell can have a minimal genome. Um, will draw heavily on the Craig Venter Institute research on the minimal mycoplasma genomes. And people are already working on a minimal E. coli genome. Um, Vibrio is already pretty small genome, and I know people are minimizing that right now as well. So I think once we get to the faster metabolism, we will also have minimized genomes by then. And maybe ideally we will even have modular genomes. So we will have the basic chassis of protein expression and energy and then on that chassis, we will be able to expand with metabolic modules that we will need for any given application. So the genome will always be kept at the smallest possible viable size, and then the replication won't take forever. Do you think it is important for a synthetic cell to self-replicate? If so, um, what are the key ingredients you think that are missing now? I think it's crucial for it to self-replicate because right now we're building every experiment from scratch. So every time I need to do a synthetic cell experiment, I have to put everything together. Um, it's great because right now I don't know what I'm doing, so I have to learn by iterating the designs. But once I have a synthetic cell that I like, I would like it to just keep making copies of itself. And if it ever is to become a useful metabolic engineering by a production, by a computing tool, it has to be self-replicating because um, otherwise we would just have to keep making new ones and it becomes cost prohibitive and time prohibitive. And I think what's missing right now are two things. One is self-replication of the membrane. Um, it's surprisingly difficult to induce membrane division using internal processes. Uh, people are working on it and I think within the next 
five years or so, we will see a spon not spontaneous, a controlled from the, from within membrane replication. So membrane replication that's controlled by protein activity inside the cell, synthetic cell. The other part that's more difficult, people are also working on it, but it, I don't see a path forward right now, is replication of a ribosome. And that's not because a synthetic ribosome cannot make enough protein bonds. It's because synthetic ribosome is too dumb to know which proteins bonds to make. Um, so, you know, ribosome, ribosome needs 160, some huge amount of proteins for the complete translation system. We have ribosomes right now, synthetic ribosomes, that can make that number of peptide bonds. So in theory, we have a ribosome that's capable of self-replicating because it's good enough to make those. Um, I think George Church did the math for it. Um, it's one of the one of his papers from like three years ago. How many peptide bonds we need to renew a ribosome, and it's possible right now to do it. The problem is some genes translate better. Some genes translate more reluctantly. And it's incredibly difficult to control if you have over a hundred genes to make, how many copies of each of those genes you want to make. So right now, the genes that replicate better will make a dozen of copies of itself. And to make a complete ribosome, we need exactly one copy of each of the proteins. And so that's a resource control, resource allocation problem. And that right now, I don't see how this will be solved. I know it will be solved. I have faith in us that we will solve it, but I can't speculate right now on how this is going to be done. Why is the stoichiometric control over the proteins so important? Like, wouldn't it still work if you have an excess of some components? If you have excess of some components, that's fine, but you spend money making those components that you're not going to be using. And cells are almost never comfortable making things they're not going to use. Cells are never in energetic surplus. They always, you know, make as many proteins as they need and they move on. So if you make, let's say, 20 extra copies of some ribosomal protein, then you wasted time and energy and building blocks to make those copies of the proteins that you want need. Um, and then you also have to ensure that even the most difficult to make proteins get made at least once per each ribosome. So, you know, if we had unlimited resources, we could just keep making the proteins at will and eventually we would assemble a ribosome sooner or later. But we don't have unlimited resources. So for this self-replicating ribosome to work, it has to make exactly one copy of everything that's needed because the ribosome will degrade before those um, all proteins are made otherwise. And also you have to remember that ribosome is not just paid to self-replicate, it's paid to actually make proteins that you want it to make, so for the rest of the cell metabolism. So the ribosome cannot just focus on making more little baby ribosomes, it also has to work for the community, it has to synthesize whatever proteins the cell needs other than ribosomal proteins. So it's even more of a resource allocation problem. So does that mean that once you get a cell which can just barely self-replicate, your life, like, will your life become a lot easier because you can set up, say, directed evolution experiments to just get the cell, cell to cell to self-improve over time? Absolutely. I'm looking forward to that day. Um, the one thing I'm worried, though, is once it becomes self-replicating, it's going to run away from us. Um, what I know 
right now is I know where every single of my molecules go. I know my genome. I know what my ribosomes are doing at any point. If it starts, starts self-replicating, I hope it doesn't happen, but I'm worried it might become a black box like every other living cell. Um, you know, even the simplest possible living cell right now, the Mycoplasma Laboratorium, has about 50-something essential genes of unknown function. So there's genes that we know have to be there, but we have no idea what they do. And I'm worried that once a synthetic cell becomes self-replicating, I'll look at it and I'll say, they grow up so fast, I have no idea what those genes are doing now. I wonder if um, your your idea of um, uh, reducing the the tri tri um, uh, um, triplet code um, so that kind of the other forty four um, codons are meaningless um, and and making those mutations lethal will that help avoid avoid them evolving on their own and becoming black boxes? It might help, or it might make my life incredibly difficult because every mutation will ruin the system. We'll, I guess we'll have to find out. It will definitely make the system simpler. So how did you get get into synthetic cells? You've touched on quite a few different reasons why someone might be motivated to do it. So looking into the origins of life, looking into how to build your own ribosomes. I think you've uh, briefly mentioned biocomputing. Um, where did you start when you got into this? I think it's one of the most, if not the most, fascinating fundamental research question right now. And despite being a completely basic fundamental research question, it also has very clear path to practical applications, biomedical industrial applications that will have a huge influence on society and economy. And that's what fascinates me is I I'm a bioengineer at heart and I just like to play with things, but I want to know that at the end of it, my things will be useful. And that's what the field of synthetic cells is providing. It's, it's a toolbox. We can play with it as bioengineers, but once we succeed and make a functioning synthetic cells, they will have incredibly useful practical applications in a lot of different fields. Uh, so that was kind of, that, that is the biggest motivation for me to work on it. And I came from origins background where I studied the origin of life and the earliest evolution of life. And that that's fascinating. That still is fascinating to me, but it has very little practical applications. Um, so then I did a postdoc in an extremely practical applied field. And I decided that's a little too practical for me. I want to still be able to play and, and kind of brainstorm from scratch and that's how I arrived at this. Do you think your work with synthetic cells can teach us something about origins of life or at least uh, prob probabilities of certain pathways being real? Absolutely. Uh, it's the only available experimental system to model and recreate the earliest evolution of life on Earth. Um, we know what we got because we're it. We, we are what came out of the probiotic evolution on Earth. So now we, if we want to go backwards and see how life started, we have to work with systems that are like synthetic cells. Um, right now, we are very good at modeling the absolute earliest, completely prebiotic stages of evolution. So what happens before the central dogma, where just the RNA molecules, very simple peptides were floating around, being made abiotically. 
And then there is this giant gap until the last universal common ancestor, because that's what we can model. We can look at all modern organisms and trace back, get kind of a um, using phylogeny and backwards protein evolution, we can figure out how the last universal common ancestor looked like. What we don't know is those shadow few million years between the absolute prebiotic evolution and the origin of Luca. So how was this kind of a halfway limping along, not quite living stage of evolution looked like? We don't have any other tools to look at it right now other than the halfway alive limping along synthetic cells that we're working with. And that's that's one of the reasons why we're using this technology to not only trace the origins of terrestrial life, but also to look at alternative pathways to evolution. So we know where we ended up because we're it, but what would happen if the same building blocks were to be floating around on in a Martian ocean or any other um, liquid water ocean um, somewhere else in the solar system? What could be the alternative outcomes of that evolution? I think um, following up on, on that line of thought, I think you might have a unique perspective on, on this question. Um, given that you are building these synthetic cells and you haven't quite reached replication yet, how easy do you think it is for these to spontaneously go from abiotic to, to biotic? Um, how do you, do you have any idea of how likely you think it might be that um, life spontaneously comes about? Like, what, what would your answer to the Drake equation be or, or something like that? Um, looking at the only available sample, which is the evolutionary history on Earth, I would say life is inevitable under the right physical chemical conditions. Um, complex life, though, is very unlikely. Um, if you look at Earth, there, there are those boring billions when nothing happened and only when the tiny cyanobacteria figured out how to photosynthesize and almost killed everyone in the process, then the life evolution of life sort of rebooted and we started having multicellular organisms and eventually us. Um, so I think if I were to guess, I would say every, to use Star Trek technology uh, terminology, every M-class planet will have a some sort of a biosphere but the likelihood of complex life is relatively low. Um, and that's pure speculation because we only have N equals one right now. So do you think we might find fossilized bacteria on Mars? if Because um, that used to be in the habitable zone. Do you think we'll find that? Yeah, I'm very optimistic. I think there was life on Mars at some point. Um, the question that obviously there's a question whether that life was seeded from earth or it's martian in origin and right now there is abs i'm absolutely sure there is um there are bacteria on mars because we dumped them there i mean we dumped tons of hardware on mars at this point and i don't believe in us being able to completely sterilize every single piece of electronics that we're sending there so right now there probably are dead bacteria on Mars and if we find them they're going to be terrestrial bacteria. But under the ice and under the regolith there probably are signs of remnants of um, native Martian biosphere and I hope we'll find it. You said that a lot of your work uh, is driven by the potential applications, however long term. What are some applications you're most excited about at this point? Everything we do in 
biomedicine, biotechnology, and bioengineering right now, except done better. Um, because every biotechnological application right now is limited by the host organism. So if you want to express pathways to do bioengineering, to do biomanufacturing, to express natural products, you're always limited by what your host organism is willing to do or capable of doing before it gets dead. Um, with synthetic cells, we can design them for those particular purposes. And some of the examples would be production of toxic chemicals, uh, things that are really hard to manufacture right now in host organisms. Um, and this is one of the big motivators for me because, um, you know, everyone talks about um, energy crisis and what happens when we run out of oil, how we need to be able to make energy. But we have technologies for that already. Um, we know how to make renewable energy. We just need to scale those technologies up. What we don't know is how to replace the entire petrochemical industry right now. Um, everything around you right now is made with petrochemicals. Um, everything you're wearing, everything from electronics to the furniture you're sitting on, that's all containing some sort of a chemical derivative that came originally out of an oil well. And we don't have technology right now to replace those chemicals. So when we run out of oil, it's not going to be an energy problem because we have technology to replace that. It's going to be a complete chemical industry disaster. And this is something that is extremely difficult to replace right now because those chemicals are nasty for a reason. And it's really difficult to imagine synthesizing raw materials, raw chemicals that are needed for the chemical industry using modern terrestrial life organisms because they have a healthy cell preservation instinct and they're going to die rather than make those um, really toxic chemicals. So we need to evolve organisms or engineer organisms that are capable of making those really toxic chemicals. And that's one of the most practical but also urgent applications of our field is how to make basically renewable chemical industry going. And then there are other um, equally cool um, applications, for example, being able to engineer uh, a designable controllable cells for biomedical purposes. So all the advantages of current things like current CAR T cell therapies, except done with cells that are engineered for the purpose, so don't have um, side effects, don't cause um, un un unpredictable orthogonal effects on the patient. Also personalized medicine, uh, being able to design a therapy exactly for a single patient. So basically design the cells design the pathways for whatever type of a cancer or whatever type of a modification the patient needs. And then there is this whole, that's, that's the most purely speculative, but there's the whole field of biocomputing and being able to biocompute with goo. And, you know, goo has advantage over electronics in that it can self-renew and also it can interface with other goo. And so our brains are goo that scares, scars really easily. So if you look at neural implants, uh, all the animal work that's done right now on neural implants, scarring is a really big problem. If you put an electrode into a mouse brain, that site is going to scar very quickly. So if we want, the question is, do we want that? But I think a lot of people would say, yes, we want brain implants, human brain implants. We need technology that's soft, that's based on soft matter, so it can interface with our brains, which are soft matter, and then on the other hand, can be controllable and programmable. 
And that's what synthetic cells are, and that's what um, is one of the most fascinating applications for me is the ability to build implants that can interface with soft matter. I think that long list of different applications shows just how he can kind of pick any any application in in the world and and figure out a way to apply synthetic cells and um, and and all of these new technologies to it. Um, I'm really excited to talk more about this idea of brain-computer interfaces. How do you even begin when you're trying to, you take the brain, this complicated organ that we don't really fully understand yet, and then these synthetic cells, which we also don't quite, you know, we're, we're still kind of at the very beginning stages, just learning how everything fits together. How do you put these two not well understood things together and get something that works? So I have the easier job of working with uh, on and designing and engineering the synthetic cell part, which is the part we actually understand. Um, I'm not a neurobiologist. I'm noped out of that field and I'm not going back. So I'm waiting for neurobiologists to figure out the brain and um, identify the targeting sites. Um, it seems like an incredibly untrackable problem right now because we don't have it solved right now. But there is a lot of efforts towards mapping human brain and making a full connectome and proteome of human brains. And given the amount of resources and the number of smart people that are working on it, I think we will figure it out. I mean, it's a biological um, object that exists. So we know that that is a problem that can it is trackable and can be figured out. So right now, I don't worry about what to target because we don't yet have that technology um, to do the targeting. I'm worried on building that technology. And I think one of the first um, applications that we will see of those um, soft matter implants will be things that we already know how to target. So that's modern neurons for people with um, that have some part of their modern neuron system damaged for people that are paralyzed. And another part will be optical implants because we understand the optical nerves pretty well right now. So um, these are kind of the two interfaces that we have the best possible understanding of right now. Um, we know everything is physical. So things like memories, feelings, that they're all results of biochemical processes, processes in our brain. So one day we'll be able to figure that out, I believe. And I kind of hope within my lifetime, but we'll see, um, we'll be able to do things like um, imp implants that directly target with our cortex. But right now, I think the most trackable things that we'll see in the nearest future will be modern neurons and optical nerves, maybe um, auditory system too. Olfactory system would be really cool too, but uh, we don't know how to do that not yet. So are you envisioning, at least at first, to like, couple it with things like mesh electronics and just replace the external control computer, which is harder to make in like mesh form and so make it soft? Yes, absolutely. There will always be an electronic interface. I don't think biocomputing will ever get as efficient, as quick, and as complicated as um, so in silica or one-day quantum computing. Um, hard matter computing will always be better at certain applications. So when we're talking about using synthetic cells as soft matter computing implants, that's always just for the layer where you're actually interfacing with the subject. I think there always will be a 
card computing interface. Um, I might be proven wrong, and that would be incredibly cool if I'm proven wrong here. Yeah. How orthogonal do you think you can make the cells to biology? Because presumably evading immune system or like in the brain glial cells is paramount. And if you could do that, that would be incredible. Uh, that's actually relatively easy part because we have a full control over the chemical composition of our cells. So we can, for example, use pegylated phospholipid membranes that are stealth to immune system. Uh, for the protein expression system, we could introduce key, few key unnatural amino acids um, or redesign few key proteins to take only those unnatural amino acids. So they will become, proteins will be completely orthogonal. Um, we could also use unnatural genetic systems. There is some work done um, in our field already on both RNA and DNA analogs with orthogonal chemical backbones. So there will be no possibility of a horizontal gene transfer between synthetic and natural cells. So I think the orthogonality is its the, one of the least of our problems right now. Seems to me that yeah, the, these ideas of, of ensuring bioorthogonality, bio you're kind of building a pathogen that can infect an, uh, a person and evade the immune system. How worried are you, are, are you that it might escape our control and then become dangerous? Um, I wouldn't say I'm worried. I would say I'm aware. Um, we are working on biosafety bio and biosecurity implications. Um, biosafety is a relatively simpler problem because the pathways, we, we have a full control over the pathways we're building and they're not self-evolving right now. So we can cont contain them and design them to be safe. Biosecurity is the, the biggest problem. Um, as always, the um, bad agent activity is something that we need to think about. And especially given the capacity of this field to replicate, to engineer whatever circuits you want, that is obviously a concern. And as a field, people within the synthetic cell community um, are definitely taking it seriously. And we decided very early on to um, invest in openness. So we think, you know, safe, both safety and security thrive in the dark. So we keep the community open. We keep all the work, all the ideas, all the protocols open. So hopefully if there are bad agents within our community, we'll be able to um, find it, to detect it early on. Um, all the bugs of the synthetic cell technologies right now are actually features when you think about it from the biosafety and biosecurity point of view, because they're not, we don't have it self-replicating right now. It's not terribly robust, so it wouldn't survive in the environment. Um, the protein expression system is time constrained because eventually your ribosomes curl up and die and we don't have a way to self-replicate them right now. So, um, at this point, the system is self-contained by our own ineptness to make it more robust. And um, because one of your goals is to make a better ribosome, make, make better components, um, do you think it might eventually outcompete terrestrial life, um, kind of the automatically evolved life? And is, is that a risk for the biosphere in the future? Um, I don't think it's a risk because every part of the biochemistry will have to be redesigned and those synthetic cells will be incredibly fragile because to make the metabolism keep up with a faster ribosome, you need to simplify that metabolism significantly. So my guess is the cells we make 
with faster ribosomes will be very fragile, will require basically a kitchen sink of a media. So they will require a lot of um, things delivered to them directly, basically spoon feed all the reagents. So that system will not be robust enough to take over. Um, it might have been robust enough to survive, to take over in a prebiotic ocean. So once we invent time travel, we will have to be really careful not to release those cells into the prebiotic ocean. But right now in a modern terrestrial ecosystem where everything is out there to eat you, if your entire metabolism is that incredibly fast, you're just going to die if you're not um, robust. And robustness cost, because the way organisms are robust is by keeping a lot of processes that they don't actively need on a back burner ready to deploy when the environmental need arises. And to make this fast, efficient metabolism, we'll have to um, get rid of all of those processes. And we see that right now in the minimal mycoplasma research. Um, the Craig-Venter minimal cell, it is the smallest possible cell, but it's incredibly wimpy. Um, a lot of the time when you grow those cells, your, your culture will mold before you replicate enough cells. Hopefully, when we do create time travel, we don't create a causal time loop where we created the common ancestor of all life um, and erase ourselves out of existence. Um, how far along the research direction of brain-computer interfaces are you? Like, um, is this just on paper at the moment, or are you kind of already in the lab creating uh, synthetic cells that when we do understand the neurobiology more, we can just drop in um, with a few tweaks? Uh, a lot of the technologies we're building can be applied to brain interface, but we're not building them with the specific purpose of doing that. So we're building synthetic cells that can interface with natural cells, and we're building synthetic cells that can um, read and transfer both chemical and electronic and electric signals. Um, you know, one of the things about neurobiology is that most of the neurobiology research is done on electrical synapses because we can trace those. But most of the synapses in a human are actually chemical synapses. And we have very little tools to study those right now. But synthetic cells are actually little chemical synapses for, in most, for most practical applications. They release small molecules and they uptake small molecules. So I think the first application of this technology in a living, real living brain will be a interface with chemical synapses. Um, and we're not working on that actively right now on like interfacing with neurons, but we're building technologies that let synthetic cells read arbitrary chemical informations from the environment and respond to them either, either by emitting fluorescent signals or by emitting other small molecules. Do you think you could use this kind of biological interfacing uh, beyond the context of the brain? Like, for example, is like diagnostic surveillance thing, like you have the synthetic cells floating around detecting cancer cells at early stages or something along those lines? Uh, that's actually the project that I am working on right now, detecting um, certain uh, proteins on the surface of one type of a cancer cell. Um, the biggest limitation of our technology right now is robustness. And so these are all very controlled, very defined time frame applications. Um, some people suggest using synthetic cells as environmental sensors, but right now they're too wimpy to release them into the environment um, and have them being useful for any longer periods of time. Um, I imagine that kind of the, one of the 
main goals in the medium term future for say motor neuron disease or or, or blindness is kind of actually um reconnecting th- those things or or you know getting that person to be able to use their limbs again etc but do you think in the short term it would just be that um you transduce the signals from the kind of motor cortex to a an electrical computer a hard computer and then kind of give them easier an easier ability to uh you know to communicate and type out or do you think that very early on we will be able to give them full use of their limbs again um what's the timeline do you think I think the first application we'll see is with in interface with electro, with electronic prosthetics. So there's already amazing work done on electronic prosthetic limbs responding to the stimuli, and I think we can we can significantly improve on that by building those little soft matter biocomputers that will interface with natural neurons, and that probably will be the first application. Um, you know the problem with repairing existing damage and restoring function in existing limbs is that um, neurons and muscles atrophy after a certain time of unuse. So it might be extremely difficult to restore function in patients that have been paralyzed for years. I think the first application of of this technology in those contexts will be restoring damage immediately after the damage occurs. So, you know, within hours to days after an event, then you might be able to build an artificial connection to restore the severed connection before the target limb actually loses its ability to respond to those signals. Okay, and so for uh, that that more long-term damage, we'd need to do a lot more research into how to get cell regeneration, um, cellular regeneration back into people. Um, and what about sight that you mentioned? So um, how well do we understand the optical nerve? Like, do you see it as kind of we take a webcam and can interface that with the optical nerve and, and restore sight that way? What, um, where, what's your vision for restoring vision? I mean, ho- hopefully by the time we get to that point, it, we will use something with better resolution than a webcam. Um, but I do believe, um, and that might be me naively talking with my limited neurobiology experience, but I do believe it's possible to at least restore um, some level of uh, crude activity um, into the optical nerve. Um, There's already a lot of work done in that area, and if we can have this programmable interface, programmable biological interface, then we should be able to um, interface electrical sensors um, with the optical nerve. We already do that for hearing loss. And, you know, that's one basically brain-computer interface that's working extremely well right now. Um, Okay, so I think we've covered short-term goals and and medium-term goals. Now let's look into the far future. Um, So I think you're also working on space exploration and the application of synthetic cells to that. Could you tell us a bit about that? Um, So that's another area where the programmability and the blank chassis of a synthetic cell becomes really useful. Um, You know, we all watched the movie where a guy grows potatoes on Mars. Um, That's not 
exactly possible right now, not just because we don't have a Martian habitat up there yet, but also because the Martian regolith is not compatible with uh, plant growth because it contains high concentration of this compound chlorate that kills plants. And we know it does because people did those experiments. People did simulated Martian regolith experiments and tried to grow seedlings, including potatoes, actually. Um, and they don't grow because of the contamination. So in order to farm Mars, we have to first terraform it. We have to terraform the surface. And that cannot be done with existing um, organisms because it's just damn toxic. So we need to evolve an organism. And synthetic cells are nice chassis for it because we can make polyextremophile synthetic cells. So, you know, on Earth, you can find extremophiles, so organisms that can live under a very extreme conditions. But it's rare to find polyextremophiles, so organisms that can tolerate more than one kick in the teeth. So, for example, you have organisms that can live at high pH or low pH or really high temperature or high radiation, but rarely all of those. Um, because it costs a lot to be an extremophile. You have to have adaptations that are very specific for, for the environment. But in a synthetic cell, we could possibly imagine designing a metabolism that will be a polyextremophile metabolism, that will be designed to live under those very extreme conditions, including Martian conditions. And that's one kind of application of the long-term space exploration. Um, another one is to keep astronauts alive and happy, and that's going to be a big challenge because we can't predict in advance what will be the needs of a crew on a really long, over six months, over a year space mission, where they will be physically cut off from any possibility of the supply missions from Earth. Um, you know, right now when an astronaut gets, gets sick on a space station, you can try to scramble a flight and deliver a medicine. And we've done that, for example, with a blood clotting medicine. And so that was the most expensive medicine on Earth because it costed a um, few million dollars to scramble that flight and deliver that medicine. We, if we have a, or a, a flexible, programmable biomanufacturing platform that can be in a very short period of time designed to make any molecule that we that an astronaut might need, then we can keep keep the crew self-sustaining um, and supplied with everything that that they might need. And we know that biology makes all of those molecules. So if we have a DNA synthesizer and a way to use those enzymes in a chassis that doesn't care about what kind of enzymes you combine, then we can make pretty much any biomolecule we want on a short notice on demand. And that's the application that I see being really useful for space exploration, but also really useful for remote point of care medicine on Earth. And that's the kind of cross of science fiction and practical applications that, that I really like. Yeah, it's basically a uh, programmable biochemical printer and um, yeah, a plan to get there. For the terraformation, so you know, so I know like some plans for terraformation or oh, this will take a thousand years or, or 500 years. How long do you think um, a, a polyextremophile that um, has to already resist radiation, low temperature, hypochlorite and, and all sorts of other conditions? How long do you think that will take to um, kind of spread and, and metabolize the perchlorate and make the soil um, suitable for farming, etc.? Um, I think the biggest hurdle to get that going will be to get that approved. Um, there is a 
very strong resistance. There's a very strong planetary protection kind of community. You don't take the point of view of um, do it now and, and ask forgiveness later. You, you, you're going to go through the regulatory process. I, I think it would be extremely hard to just do a flyover of Mars in secret and, and shake some polyextremophile on the surface. Um, I personally, I'm of an opinion that if that we should do it because, um, you know, right now we say we screwed up Earth and it's terrible because we don't have a planet B. Um, but we do have a planet B hanging out there. Um, we just need to change it enough that it becomes habitable. And hopefully, I again, I might be an, an, uh, too much of an optimist, but I think we learned our lessons. And we're still in a process of learning it. In the next few decades, we'll see that the climate change become terrible enough that I think most people will understand what we've done or they'll just die. And so the ones that will survive will understand how much we screwed up on Earth, and hopefully by the time we get a terraformed Mars in our hands, we will understand what we've done wrong. Also, Mars doesn't have fossil fuels, so it would be much harder to um, ruin it that way. So I think we should terraform it, and um, I honestly cannot speculate on the time frame that it will take. Definitely not within our lifetimes. Um, it will be a really slow process. It will be a really gradual process. Um, but I think it's worth doing because if we... Um, obviously, it will require a lot of work because we've seen what introducing new organisms into the ecosystem does. Um, you know, we just look at Australia or even look at the how gray squirrels are taking over red squirrels in Europe. Um, every time you introduce something to the ecosystem, it has unintended consequences. But, um, the, you know, the nice thing about Mars is that right now doesn't have an ecosystem, at least not that we know of. And the changes we want to make um, are fundamental enough that it will create a, basically a blank chassis, a planet that will be then able to be colonized by uh, terrestrial organisms. So I'm optimistic it will happen, but I cannot give you a timeline for when it will happen. I I can speculate about how long it would take to build a polyextremophile in a lab on Earth. And that's, you know, we have ideas how to do it, and there's some research towards that already. So my guess is if, if the order comes in, that we're, we will be able to drop it on Mars in 10 years, we'll be ready by then. Um, we won't be able to drop it on Mars in 10 years, so the, there is significantly less rush. Well, I mean, that is what Elon Musk is hoping, right? That to get people walking on the surface in, well, what is his time period? I think it might be even be sooner than that, five years maybe. I think he, who knows how close he'll get, but I think he really wants to push that. So could be that the order does come in. I think you have to start exploding your rockets. If if it it doesn't inspire confidence if SpaceX keep explode keep exploding on launches, but um, you know there will be a long time between a first human walking on Mars and a permanent habitat. Um, we obviously have a lot of beautiful plans for a permanent habitat right now, but for you know, we had a guy walking on a moon, several of them even, and we still don't have a permanent habitat on a moon. Um, establishing a permanent presence will be significantly harder than just getting people to land and come back. So when you speak about, spoke about like um, 
long journeys in space and essentially having your DNA printer and then using that to then program a cell to say, I, I want to produce this molecule of interest. Do you imagine, um, so like what makes you think, so for instance, like, like a couple of years ago, a paper came out where um, they evolved E. coli in the lab for several months and got it to be able to metabolize CO2, like to, 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 to replicate. Do you essentially envision the that your your work will make all directed evolution on life uh, experiments redundant? Um, no, definitely not. There will be a lot of applications where natural evolved organisms will still win just because they are so much more robust. And we don't understand biological robustness right now as well as we should. So E. coli will always win with a synthetic cell because if a synthetic cell becomes as robust as an E. coli, it will be as big as and clumsy as E. coli. Um, that's the price you pay for being really good at survival. And so for things like bioremediation, for example, I still think natural cells will be better to use because you can they can adapt to the environment much better than an artificial cell ever will. Um, I think of artificial cells as tools, and if you make a tool too complex, then you can't use it anymore. So I don't think we'll make artificial evolution of natural organisms redundant. I think there's a lot of applications where we will take over natural evolved cells, like biomanufacturing, biomedicine, but not all of them. If I remember correctly, you've actually launched some synthetic cells into space. Can you um, explain what, what those did and how you managed to... Did you work with NASA to do that? Uh, yeah, so what we launched were two experiments. One was expression of a functional correct folded RNA, and the other one was expression of a fluorescent protein reporter. Um, that protein reporter was a very small fluorescent peptide aptamer tag. And so we launched them. The rocket didn't blow up. Um, we recovered the samples. So what we know is that this technology is robust enough to function under those limited spaceflight conditions. Um, then now the next step is to launch it onto an ISS experiment and have actual human astronauts perform some operations to program the system and then get a readout. Um, that would tell us a little more about the validity of this approach for the astropharmacy long-term space mission applications. Uh, we still don't know how to test it for terraforming applications since we don't have a, a little experimental Mars in orbit to, to play with it. If um, all of these go to plan, and I really hope they do, what do you think might, where do you want to see us getting with um, artificial life and, and syntax biology in a thousand years, 10,000 years? Where do you think if, if we... If we don't kill ourselves with climate change and, and if we don't destroy planet V, where do you think we'll get to? Um, I mean, I would be very happy to know that humanity will still exist in a thousand years. Um, that I would consider that a win because right now we're doesn't that doesn't seem very likely, but hopefully we'll learn and we will still be there. It's incredibly hard to speculate on that time scale because, you know, even hundred years, last hundred years proven so completely transformative that I can't even speculate on that huge time scale. I think um, once we really master bioengineering, once bioengineering really becomes engineering, so we'll be able to actually 
modify and understand what we're doing um, to living organisms, we'll be able to eliminate most diseases because um, most diseases right now are basically some of the goo is breaking down. And if we learn how to fix the goo, we'll be able to um, overcome a lot of modern diseases. Um, we'll also have a much better control over our environment and hopefully we'll be by then we'll learn enough that we'll be smart enough to control the environment in a smart and um, way that makes sense. Um, right now, I wouldn't trust humanity with those technologies, but I'm kind of hoping that by the time we get there, uh, we'll be able to think enough to, to apply them responsibly. And, you know, the, the biggest promise of this whole field is the lineage agnostic biology. So all the things that are right now considered impossible because modern terrestrial cells won't do it might become possible once we redesign the cells. And that's what I'm the most excited about, the possibilities that we can't even imagine right now. Um, I think it would be really cool for people to start making wish lists. Um, you know, as this technology grows, what do we want to see? Um, what kind of applications people want to see? What are the things that we're trying to do with natural cells right now that are impossible? Um, people in synthetic cell community are obviously we're limited by our own experiences. So like I can't tell what are the needs of a lot of different fields. Um, so having people contact us saying, hey, you need to do this or that would be extremely helpful for the whole community because it would give us kind of a specific goals to work towards. I, I have one more question, which is kind of a weird one. Um, you said that you said that your um, your synthetic cells at the moment, or once they maybe are able to just about self replicate, would maybe be able to like outcompete um, whatever thing existed in the primordial soup. What, <laughs> give it like given the chance, would you um, would you would you chuck a bunch of your synthetic cells onto like a probe and send it out? deep into space, hope it crashes into a planet and maybe seed an entire new civilization? <laughs> um, I would love to just to see what happens, but I don't think that's necessary because I feel like life on a planetary scale is an inevitable phenomenon. So as long as there is a probiotic ocean, it will start evolving. Uh, oh, but it would be your one. It, it, it wouldn't be some. It would be your synthetic life. <laughs> the creator of the world. I like that title. <laughs> And you could use synthetic biology to, to extend your life to 4 billion years and then look at it a bit later and see where it got to. I don't know if I would like to live 4 billion, year, 4 billion years. I would run out of the books to read uh, by halfway to that <laughs> mark, I think. Um, but I would definitely like to be able to see life. Um, we, you know, the panspermia is sort of a dirty word right now because it's used by, by the crazy people to, to but it actually is a field of serious scientific consideration. Um, you know, for example, we've recently seen the Oumuamua, the object that approached solar system um, from far enough away that it would be really cool to see what happens if we can seed life over those distances. Um, and I think the idea of sending something like a self-replicating genetic printer all over the universe to seed the universe with uh, terrestrial DNA would be really cool. Um, the question is, are we the thing that we want to seed over the universe? Um, is modern terrestrial <laughs> life really the, the blueprint for life in the universe? I, I, I don't think we've earned that. 
yeah, I think at the moment, if we did that, we'd probably end up destroying all life in the universe by spreading climate change, causing humans and other beings everywhere. So, yeah, it should probably grow up a bit yeah. before we... Or we would point. really piss someone off and they would come find Earth and, and sterilize it. They would take one look at us and <laughs> say, nope. <laughs> Um, with that optimistic outlook, um, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us, Kate. This is really exciting stuff. Um, I, I really hope that uh, hopefully within our lifetime we'll at least start to see this kind of becoming self-replicating and, and maybe start the process of terraformation, even if we don't see it come to fruition. Um, stay tuned for our next episode with Namita Saraf in a week's time. And thanks, everyone, for listening.